And Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, is where we're going to be uh, digging in this morning. So if you have a copy of the text, you can go ahead and turn there. If not, it's going to be on the screen for you as we read it together. Luke, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Luke writes these words. He says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn." In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there were, was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. In 1991, Danny Glover starred in a movie entitled Grand Canyon. And the opening scene in that movie is seared in my mind um, from the moment that I watched it. And there's an exchange that takes place. Danny Glover is a tow truck driver named Simon who is called out to an inner city tow. And when he arrives on the scene, he finds a gentleman there whose car has broken down. But there's also some street kids who are gathered around there to harass this guy, to mug this guy, to rob this guy. And so whenever Simon shows up on the scene, he goes to hook his truck up to the car to tow it off uh, to get repaired. And so one of these street kids comes up to him with a gun, and they begin this interchange, and they have this conversation. And Simon, Danny Glover's character, says to this kid, he says, I've got to ask you for a favor. Let me go my way here. This truck's my responsibility, and now that this car is hooked up to it, it's my responsibility too. And the kid says, do you think I'm stupid? Just answer that question first. And Simon says, look, I don't know nothing about you. I don't know, uh, and you don't know nothing about me. I don't know if you're stupid or some kind of genius. All I know is that I need to get out of here, and you got the gun. So I'm asking you for the second time, let me go my way here. And the kid replies, I'm going to grant you that favor, but I'm going to ask you to remember it if we ever meet again. But tell me this, are you asking me as a sign of respect? Are you asking me because I've got the gun? To which Simon replies, man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. I mean, don't you know that yet? I'm supposed to be able to do my job without having to ask you if I can. That dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything is supposed to be different than it is. Everything is supposed to be different than it is. And all of us have that sense, don't we, when we look at the world around us? The world ain't supposed to work like this. Everything is supposed to be different than what we experience. And perhaps there's no other season throughout the calendar of the 12 months of the year that we recognize that the world ain't supposed to work like this other than this season leading up toward the holidays. As we move toward Christmas, 
Because every year during this season, we realize that there are things in our personal lives and in our family lives that aren't supposed to work like this. It ain't supposed to be this way. We realize that we've got to press into those kind of dysfunctional family relationships that some of us have. We got to go spend time with those people in their home and eat meals with them when we really don't want to see them. It ain't supposed to be that way. It's not supposed to work like this. I was sitting at the uh, local coffee shop uh, earlier this week, and, and some of you are going to get paranoid, right? Because every time I sit in a coffee shop and I tell you a story about a coffee shop, you think, man, he's overhearing everything that I say. And it's hard not to, isn't it? I was overhearing this conversation. It was a one-way conversation because this young lady was sitting there next to me, and she receives a phone call. And she, I, all I can hear is her side of the conversation, obviously, but she's saying, this is why I hate Christmas Because all we do is argue about who's going to see each other when and where we're going to spend Christmas Eve and where we're going to spend Christmas Day and what kind of decorations we're going to put up and what kind of food we're going to eat. All we do is argue. I hate Christmas. And some of you feel that right now in your families and you go, it ain't supposed to be like this. Every year as well in our nation, we realize there are things that aren't supposed to be like this. And this year in particular, as we move toward Christmas, this year our nation is divided over the proper use of lethal force among law enforcement, particularly in relation to minorities. And there's a protest going on all across our nation. In regards to where you sit on that issue, when you look at that issue, you go, man, the world ain't supposed to work that way. It's not supposed to be like this. Even on an international and global scale, we look around, and this year, at the forefronts of our minds are the tensions that exist because of terrorist organizations like ISIS, and you look at what they're doing in the Middle East and where they're trying to spread, and you go, it's not supposed to work that way. Do you feel that? I do. I do. As we move toward Christmas, this peace that the angels proclaim in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, you look around and you go, where is it? I don't see it. I don't see it. And the Bible categorizes our realization that things ain't supposed to work like this. They ain't supposed to be that way. It categorizes that realization that comes in our minds as what we are, as basically, in essence, our longing for peace. We want it in our families. We want it in our nation. We want it across our globe. And yet so often we feel kind of like Henry Wadsworth Longfellow in his carol, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Eve, as he wrote that in the midst of the American Civil War, when he says this, he says, then from each black accursed mouth, he's speaking about cannons that are thundering across the plains. The cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound of the cannon ringing, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent or it tore the hearthstones, the foundation stones of our continent and made forlorn or lonely the households born because it robbed them of their sons and daughters and husbands and fathers of peace on earth and goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth and goodwill to men. You feel it, don't you? I feel it. It ain't supposed to be this way. When we look around, we say, where is this peace that Jesus has come to provide? And where is this peace that Jesus has come to purchase? 
And so this morning, we really just want to dig into verse 14 of Luke chapter 2 and us to consider several things. What is this peace that the angels proclaim has arrived in the birth of this child in this desolate, really off the beaten path, a little town called Bethlehem? What is this peace that he provides? Who receives it? How do you enjoy it, and what difference does it make? Those four questions. The first one is this. What is this peace? And the peace that the angels show up and are singing about and declaring in the heavens above the town in the fields of Bethlehem when Jesus is born, this peace that the angels are talking about is what I would call a horizontal harmony. It's a horizontal harmony. Harmony. Listen, the peace that the Bible speaks of, and particularly the peace the New Testament speaks of, oftentimes, yes, it does refer to that sense of inner calm within us, right? It kind of is the windbreak for our souls in the midst of all kinds of chaos. There is that kind of peace that the Bible speaks of. There's an inner sense of peace that we get. But that's not what the angels are talking about here. Because the angels don't say, and peace within men, but it says peace among men. It's not talking about this inner sense of calm, but this horizontal peace that exists between husbands and children, or or, or fathers and children, husbands and wives, sons and daughters, people who are part of the same community, the same nation, and the same, live on the same planet. So this peace that the angels are talking about is not an upward peace necessarily between us and God, nor is it an inner peace of this inner calm, but it's an outward peace, this horizontal peace, this horizontal harmony. And this peace isn't just the absence of hostility, but it is that presence of harmony. And what is a harmony? A harmony is essentially this. When you listen to good music, right, you listen for harmonies, right, because you listen for how voices blend together. And whenever voices blend together well, it creates a pleasurable experience for your ears, doesn't it? But whenever those voices are competing or they're conflicting and one wants to outshine the other and the other's trying to outshine the one that's trying to outshine them, what happens? It don't sound too good, does it? It's not a very pleasurable experience because they're at conflict and at odds with each other. And what the Bible is talking about here, when these angels show up and they say, and on earth, peace, it's talking about this horizontal harmony, where where there is a, a, a collaboration, a cooperation, a unity, and not this conflict that's taking place. That's the kind of peace that the that Luke writes about, that the angels sing about. It's not inward, it's not upward, it's outward. In fact, one uh, theologian, Cornelius Plantinga, in uh, his book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, describes this peace in this way. Listen to what he says. He says, this peace is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom from the Hebrew text, means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied, natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. The way things ought to be. And then he goes on to describe this horizontal harmony this way. He says, it would include, for instance, strong marriages and secure children, 
Nations and races in this brave new world would treasure differences in other nations and races as attractive, important, and complementary. Government officials would still take office, he says, because somebody's got to decide who's going to take the trash out on Wednesday or Tuesday or Thursday or when that's going to happen and which streets are going to be cleaned. But to nobody's surprise, these officials would tell the truth and freely praise the virtues of other public officials. Highway overpasses would be free from graffiti. Tow truck drivers and erring motorists would be serene on inner city streets. Business associates would rejoice in one another's promotions. Middling Harvard students would respect the Phi Beta Kappas from the University of Southern North Dakota at Hopple. And they would seek to learn from them. Intercontinental ballistic missile silos would be converted into training tanks for scuba divers all around the world. People would stimulate and encourage one another's virtues. Newspapers would be filled with well-written accounts of acts of great moral beauty. And at the end of the day, people on their porches would read these instead of what we read today. And they would savor them. And they would call each other about them. It says, above all, in the visions of Christians, God would preside in the unspeakable beauty for which human beings long and in the mystery of holiness that draws human worship like a magnet. In turn, each human being would reflect the color, the light, and color and light of God's presence out of the inimitable, or big word for unique, resources of his or her own character and essence. Human communities would present their ethnic and regional specialties to each other, to other communities in the name of God, in glad recognition that God, too, is a radiant and hospitable community of three persons. In their own accents, communities would express praise, courtesies, and deferences that, when massed together, would keep building like waves of passion that is never spent. That is the way things ought to be. That is horizontal harmony. That is what the Bible speaks of when it speaks of peace. And listen, let's bring it down a notch this morning. It would also include, it would also look like holiday gatherings where there is not drama because there is deference and regard for others. And everyone isn't competing with each other over their own agendas, right? You wouldn't have the blow-ups in the kitchen and people storming out. That's what it would look like. You wouldn't have the conversation with one set of family that says, well, you spent two hours and 47 minutes at their house, but only two hours and 23 minutes at ours. Right? Some of you are on the giving side of that conversation. Some of you are on the receiving side of that conversation. That's the way things ought to be. Peace is horizontal harmony. But notice, notice who the angels say actually have access to this peace. Notice who he says they have, has access to this peace. Listen, who has access to it? Say it this way, anyone who trusts and treasures Jesus. Anyone who trusts and treasures Jesus, those are the folks who have access to this peace. In the latter part of verse 14, the angels say that on earth, this peace is among those with whom he is pleased. Right? The NIV translates it this way, on whom his favor rests. And the King James Version translates it this way, on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Now, when we first look at this verse, we, our initial run at this verse, we are tempted to think that what God is saying here or what Luke is saying here, what the angels are saying here is that horizontal harmony, this peace is provided and promised to those who live right and do good to earn standing with God, to earn God's favor, right? Because goodwill towards men, 
But what the goodwill, the King James Version is talking about, is not our goodwill toward each other, but God's goodwill toward us. That's why the NIV says, on whom his favor rests. And the ESV says, on whom, or with, those, on whom those, with, he, with, with whom he is pleased. Right? It's not our goodwill toward each other, but God's goodwill toward us. And in fact, if you think, well, it's, this peace is given to those who do right and do good and live right, and that they earn standing with God, nowhere else in the Bible do we find that kind of reasoning or that kind of logic or that kind of argumentation. But everywhere else in the Bible do we find the counter of that. For instance, if you just look at the first 12 chapters of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, you've got Adam and Eve, our first parents, rising up to take things that God has set out of bounds, the one thing that he puts off limits. So they're violating God's ordinances and commands, and they take of the fruit and they eat it, and that leads to the first murder in Genesis chapter 4. And by Genesis chapter 6, the world has gotten so bad that God says, I've got to send a flood and start over with Noah and his family. And so he sends this massive flood to wipe off the earth, and he starts over with Noah and his family. And then you get later on in Genesis chapter 9, and Noah's there in his tent with very questionable things happening as he's passed out drunk with his, one of his children. Right? Not the poster children for those who are earning God's favor and acceptance. But then you get to Genesis chapter 12, and God says, I'm going to choose a family. And through that family, I'm going to bless the world. See, everywhere else in the Bible, it runs counter to that. In fact, you get to Isaiah chapter 1, and God says, I'm sick of all your hollow religiosity, all of your feast, and all of your pomp and circumstance, and all of the songs that you sing, because there is no justice in you. There is no righteousness that you're conducting yourselves with. So what the angels say here is not those who enjoy this peace or those who do good and live right and then God accepts them and grants them favor. What the angels are saying here is far more profound. Far more profound. What the angels are saying here is this, is that the people who receive and enjoy this peace that the angels proclaim are those who treasure the birth of the one that Isaiah calls the Prince of Peace and they trust in his finished work. See, the goodwill isn't our goodwill toward others, but God's goodwill to us. And in fact, a couple of commentators, Bruce Metzger said it this way in his textual commentary on the New Testament. He said, not that the divine peace can be bestowed only where human goodwill is already present. In other words, you're doing really good, and so I'm going to give you peace. He says, rather, at the birth of the Savior, God's peace rests on those whom he has chosen in accordance with his good pleasure. So it's not that we earn our way up to God, but God sets his affection on us and comes down. Daryl Bach, a seminary professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, writes a massive volume on Luke's commentary. And in that volume, he says, with whom he is pleased is a technical phrase in first century Judaism for God's elect, those on whom God has poured out his favor. Those upon whom God has set his affection. Those upon whom God has chosen for himself. Now listen, some of you right now, I know what you're thinking, right? you got all these objections raising in your mind. You're thinking, but doesn't God love everyone? Absolutely God loves everyone. You don't have to try and finagle some weird way of John 3.16 saying God doesn't indeed love the world. But does God, but does God love everyone the same? That's the question. If you look back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, you're going to see God say this to his people through his prophet. He's going to say, listen... I set my affection upon you in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 11. I set my affection upon you. 
I chose you out of all the peoples of the earth. Why? Not because you were more numerous of them and not because you did anything that was really impressive, but because I loved you. And I chose you for myself. And the New Testament continues to carry on that theme as you work through the epistles and even here in the gospels that were born in John chapter 1, not of the will of man nor of the will of flesh, but of the will of God. We come to birth. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3 For God has caused us to be born again, his work in us to bring us to life all throughout the scriptures. No, God does love everyone. Indeed. Indeed. But there are some that he has a particular love for, sets his affection upon and says, you're mine. Listen, let me illustrate it to you this way. Uh, On May 19th, 2001. My wife and I stood at an altar before all of our friends and family and before God and before our pastor, and we exchanged vows with one another. We stood there and we entered into covenant relationship together. Why? Because I chose her as my wife, and she chose me, more importantly, as her husband. And God has blessed me through that union for the last 12 years, 13 years. She has, been, she, she has been an encourager and a supporter, and she has stood behind me and with me through thick and thin. She has enabled me to serve Jesus' church in the capacities that I've had the opportunity to serve Jesus' church in. And I love her, and I chose her. And so when I look out upon our congregation, I say, listen, if you're a woman in our congregation, I love you as a pastor loves, a shepherd loves his sheep. I love you, and I'm committed to you, and I will serve you. But when I get in my car and I drive five miles to my house and I go on my front door, my wife is standing there at the counter preparing dinner for us and our family, and I look at her in the eyes and I say, Karen, I love you. I better mean something different when I look at my wife who I'm chosen to enter into covenant relationship with and spend all of my life with. I better mean something different when I look at her in the eyes and say, baby, I love you. than when I look at any other woman in our congregation as a pastor and say, I love you. Why? Because I've chosen her. Chosen her. She's mine. God's blessed me with that gift. And indeed, God has an electing love for his people. Those who are his, sets his affection upon them. And by his good pleasure, he chooses them. Now, how do you know that God has done that? Because you trust and treasure Jesus. Apart from God, causing you to be born again, apart from God and the will of God, bringing you to life, you would not be. So you look and go, how do I know that God is pleased? How do I go that, know that God's favor rests upon me? How do I know that God's goodwill has come to me? Because you trust and treasure Jesus. Because God, in his great love, he has shattered your resistance, and he has melted your heart. And he's brought you to himself. Now listen, some of you, right, your, your gears are spinning right now. <laughs> Right? You're going, well, what about? What about? You got all these objections that are raising in your mind. And listen, let me just say to you for a moment. Right? You may not agree with me on how you came to be born. Okay? But if you have been born, if you have been born, if you trust and treasure Jesus, the angels say peace is possible for you. It's possible. 
And so here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to get hung up on this for the next 15 minutes, right? If you disagree with me about how you've been born, here's what I'd like you to do. Just email me and say, hey, man, I'd love to sit down with you and chat about that. I'd love to just visit with you because I'm having some struggles here with some of this stuff. And let's talk through it, okay? Let's talk through it. I would love to sit down with you. But here's what I don't want to happen. I don't want your minds to be spinning, right? The gears to be turning, right? These pistons to be shattering in there and oil be leaking out of your ears because all this stuff's going on up here and you miss. You miss what else God has to say. All right? Is that a deal? Set up some time with me. Let's visit. But come with me. Come with me. How do we enjoy this peace? That God affords its horizontal harmony among those that God has set his affection upon. And listen to what the angels say. They say it's by beholding his glory. By beholding his glory. In verse 14, there's a word and that makes the connection between glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those upon whom his favor rests or among those with whom he is pleased. So there's a connection here between glory and peace, between God's glory and our peace, right? But notice who declares this. This blows my mind. As I was thinking through this this week, it just really shook me as I looked at it and I thought, it's the angels. There's not men on earth who are declaring this glory to God in the highest, but it's the angels. Now, who are the angels? They're these sinless creatures who have existed from the time that God created them in his perfect presence, singing of his glory, singing of his beauty, singing of his majesty. And yet here they are when they arrive in that field outside of Bethlehem and they are there to declare the birth of God's son, Jesus Christ. They say glory to God in the highest. In other words, what these angels who like in Isaiah 6 have been saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. Those same angels who have been witnesses of God's glory from the time that they were conceived and created show up and say, this is the most glorious thing we've ever seen. (laughs) This is the most majestic thing we have ever seen. We've ever laid our eyes on. God sending his son for sin and sinners. This blows our mind. And so they declare glory to God in the highest. His beauty and majesty and splendor and worth. It's inconceivable because these same angels had seen angels fall in their sin. And there was no redemption plan outlined for these angels who became Satan's hosts in hell. And yet when man falls, God says, save him. Glory to God in the highest. J.C. Ryle, an old Anglican bishop, said it this way. He said, Now is come the highest degree of glory to God by the appearing of his son, Jesus Christ, in the world. He, by his life and death on the cross, will glorify God's attributes, justice, holiness, mercy, and wisdom, as they were never glorified before. Creation glorified God, but not so much as redemption. Creation sings the songs of God's praises. In fact, the Bible tells us if we are silent, the rocks will cry out. 
He says creation glorifies God, but not so much as redemption because nowhere else in human history has God's perfections been made known than in the sending of his son for sin and sinners. And the angels, if the angels who have been beholding God's glory from the time that they were created are saying, this is amazing. Shouldn't it also be captivating for us who are participants of his redemptive work? The end means there's a connection between this glory and the peace that we enjoy. But what's the connection? Here's what I think the connection is. Seeing and savoring the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Come for sin and sinners. It paves the path for peace among men with whom he is pleased. And here's why. It's because it begins to minimize the glory of everything else that we compare over and compete for. Right? It begins to minimize all those things. Most of you guys in the room have a desktop computer, right, or a laptop computer. And on the desktop of that computer screen, you've probably got some kind of image. And you've got that image there because it's an image of your kid or it's an image of some serene, um, you know, picture from the mountains or the beach or images of your dogs or images of your wife or your husband. You've got that there because there's a sense of beauty for that in you, right? So when you open up your laptop or whenever you log on to your desktop, that's the first thing that comes up and you behold that image, it doesn't stay there very long, does it? At least not on my desktop, it doesn't, because I got like 17 windows opened up here, right? And I'm kind of maneuvering between these 17 windows. And all these windows are obstructing the view of this beautiful image that I've got there to remind myself of my wife or of my children or of God's glory and creation. You got all these windows up. But if you go by one by one and begin to minimize those windows, right, they begin to kind of suck down into the background and put them in their proper perspective, and then you behold the glory. And listen, when you and I behold the glory of God in Jesus Christ sent for sin and sinners, here's what happens. It begins to minimize all these windows of everything else that we believe that we have to have in order, in order to taste of glory, to have beauty. So we're competing for these things and we're comparing over those things and we're trying to control others to produce those things. But when those things get minimized and recede into the background and the glory of God in Jesus is in the foreground, peace, peace, horizontal harmony. I'm not competing with you anymore. I'm not comparing against you anymore. I'm not trying to control you anymore. Because those windows just got minimized. And the glory of God is maximized before our eyes. And we behold it. That's the connection. God's glory, in essence, shatters and outshines every other thing that we think is beautiful in this world, that we think we must have in order to be satisfied or fulfilled, that we compare over, compete for, or try and control others in order to get. But listen, this horizontal harmony among those with whom God is pleased is only possible if you and I meet over the manger and over the empty tomb as redeemed sinners. Because if you're rejoicing in God's redemptive work to send his son for sin and sinners, then you're meeting each other as forgiven sinners. 
not armed soldiers who are ready to go to battle for what they want and what they feel like they have to need, what they need. But rather you meet as men and women who are forgiven sinners. Who like the angels are going, this is the most phenomenal thing I have ever seen in my life. That God would be so gracious to me. That he would love me. When I've done nothing to deserve it. Did nothing to impress him. Did nothing to warrant his love. Yet he freely gives. It blows my mind. And when you meet somebody else over that same reality, you're both going, that is glorious. That is amazing. I can't believe it. And then both of you have all these windows of glory minimized in your background, and so you're not competing against each other, trying to control each other, or comparing yourselves against one another. Nations would be at peace. Families would be at peace. The world would be at peace. And the church would be, listen, the church would be a beacon in the world of the peace that's afforded to anyone who would trust and treasure Jesus Christ. But what difference does it make finally? What difference does this peace make? I'll close with this. Those who have access to this peace, they should be agents of it. Should be agents of this peace. In the text that uh, Jeff and Jennifer read for us earlier this morning, at the end of Zechariah's prophecy in Luke 1, we read this, these words as Zechariah says, When the promised Messiah arrives, he will guide our feet into the way of peace. And the word in the Bible, when the Bible speaks of us walking or our feet moving in a direction, it's always almost exclusively talking about how we live. How we live. And Zechariah says, when the Messiah shows up, when God comes to redeem, he's going to guide us. He's going to teach us how to live at peace with each other. He's going to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, this means at least this. It means at least this, that in the church, that in the church, you and I don't resign to live with relational strife. We seek to resolve it and move toward harmony. See, some of you right now, have resigned yourself just to live in the midst of all this relational tension and all this, this relational strife with family, with church family. I'm just going to kind of maybe go over to this life group and they can go over to this life group and we're just, we're just kind of do our own thing. But in the church, you don't just resign yourself to live in that kind of strife and tension. The church, those who have access to this peace, should be agents of it as Jesus guides our feet in it that we should seek to reconcile as opposed to fester in resentment. In addition, it means that in our families, we don't resign to live with that kind of same resentment, but we forgive where we need to forgive and we repent where we need to repent because some of us are the reason for the strife. Some of us are the reason for the tension. And we repent and turn from that as an agent of peace. And those of us who are on the receiving end of it, that we extend forgiveness as agents of peace. If you have access to it, you've got to be an agent of it. 
Don't resign to live in tension. Don't resign to live in strife. Don't resign to live in resentment and bitterness. But live as a beacon in the world. As a beacon in the world. Of this peace that's afforded to anyone who would trust and treasure Jesus. If you've got access to it, be an agent of it. That horizontal harmony that rests on those with whom God is pleased. And as we step forward into that, we find that there is hope for peace, that things can be the way they're supposed to be. In fact, the final stanza of Longfellow's hymn that he wrote back in the 1860s says this. He says, Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Now, how can we be certain God's not sleeping? Nor that he's dead, and here's how you can be certain. There has been only one person in human history that possessed a horizontal harmony with God the Father, and his name is Jesus Christ. He was at peace with him from all of eternity, and yet in coming for sin and sinners at the cross, he lost that horizontal harmony as the Father turned his back on him, and Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? He loses his horizontal harmony. And because he lost it, you can have it. Because he lost it, you can have it. He's not dead and he's not asleep. So be agents of this peace he's come to provide. Let's pray together. Father, we come today giving you thanks for your kindness and mercy in Jesus Christ. And Father, for those of us in the room this morning who are your children, your sons and daughters, that you've adopted us because you love so freely, may we step forward into this horizontal harmony between those that we call family and those in our community and be agents of that peace in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our nation that we would not resign ourselves to live in strife and at war, but we would be a beacon to the world of the peace that is ours in Jesus Christ.